This is the 10,000 Depositions Later podcast, episode 13, The Real Reason to Cross-Notice a Deposition. Before I get to that, I sometimes like to start episodes with a general thought or two about why it's important to develop a complete mastery over depositions, or what I like to call deposition science. So let me talk about that for a minute or two before we get to today's topic. To some litigators, a deposition is something you simply grind through. Once the lawsuit is up and running, they figure out who the witnesses are, depose them, and use the resulting transcripts as best they can for their side of the case. And they can probably get through their entire career by following that model. In fact, you've probably seen lawyers who've been practicing for 30 years or more and who haven't materially improved their skills since they started practicing. It's possible to get through a legal career that way. But there is so much more to the science of depositions so many layers, so many variants. The high-level practitioner will use those variants to their critical advantage. And I've talked about this in other episodes, that it's important to evaluate what the deposition strategy should be in every case. Sometimes I've advocated you should take very few depositions. There are other ways to gather testimony. Depositions are not always the correct way. And here's an example. Last week, in a case where I represent a plaintiff, I easily sailed past summary judgment, even though I had not taken a single deposition. The case has been pending for a while. There are no imminent discovery deadlines. And the defense counsel, someone I respect and have dealt with many times, asked me to please set my depositions before he filed his summary judgment motion. And I appreciated that. He's given me a courtesy heads up that that's where he's headed. And he wanted me to have a fair shot at questioning witnesses before he did that. But I told him that I would not be taking any depositions before he filed his motion, and it was ruled on because that was my plan for that case. Now, I fully appreciate that many lawyers would panic at the thought of defending a summary judgment motion without having taken a single deposition. But in this case, I evaluated the available witnesses and concluded that I already knew what they were going to say. So I'd stand my ground and defend against the motion based on my client's deposition testimony and on a supplemental affidavit that I would be preparing. In other words, I saw no need to question eight or ten witnesses whose testimony was already known to me. I knew what they would tell me in deposition, and frankly, I had no interest whatsoever in generating thousands and thousands of dollars in deposition costs and hundreds and hundreds of pages of adverse testimony for the benefit of the opposing lawyer. Those transcripts would have, in effect, been rolled up and used to beat me over the head at the summary judgment hearing. Why would I do that? There just weren't clever lines of attack where I could impeach their witness's story at that point. Their story is their story, mine is mine. But here's something to think about. Because I didn't take any depositions of their witnesses, it put the defense lawyer in the position of having to work to construct testimony to build his own case through affidavits. And that can be trickier than it sounds. You've got to think through the elements, the factual issues, the factual disputes, and find witnesses with competent or admissible knowledge, and you've got to draft those affidavits properly. Not always an easy task. As I suspected, the affidavits that got filed had some glaring holes in them. Some had statements in them that would clearly not be admissible. None of the affidavits addressed critical points that I would have covered without doubt in a deposition. In other words, had I taken depositions I would have covered the waterfront and essentially ensured that my opposing lawyer had favorable defense testimony to use against me 
on summary judgment. Because I took no depositions, it forced the defense lawyer to construct an arguable basis for summary judgment from scratch. And of course, with my client's deposition testimony, which was very strong. The defense lawyer had to take the long road and it didn't work because the judge denied summary judgment. So now, with summary judgment behind me for the moment, and I realize that it could be filed again, I'll start to take depositions. What's the advantage to me now? Because I have all of their affidavits submitted on summary judgment from all of their key witnesses. So their testimony has been laid out thoroughly for better or worse. I also have their memorandum of law and other papers, which reflect their very best and sharpest thinking about the strengths of their case. In other words, I now have their roadmap to what they think is success. So now I can better attack their witnesses in a much more focused way when I take depositions because I forced the opposing lawyer to lay out his entire case before I took a single deposition. Now look, there are lots of lawyers, I guarantee you, that would see this as unnecessary bravado or even malpractice. I say the opposite. It was simply a well-thought-out deposition strategy. And quite frankly, malpractice might have been just taking the depositions because I could. So it wasn't magic. I had just given thought to the best possible deposition strategy for this case with these issues and on this set of facts with these witnesses, and it worked exactly as I planned. That's what my book series, 10,000 Depositions Later, is all about, about understanding the science of depositions and using its principles and variances, the nuances, to maximum advantage. Deposition science isn't tic-tac-toe, where all of the information you need in order to figure out what your next move should be is right on the paper in front of you. It's more like poker, where some of the information you need, some of the critical information, is missing. Your picture, your puzzle, is incomplete. And that's where strategy makes a difference. Okay, let's talk about cross-noticing. What is it? As you may know, cross-noticing is just a fancy term for serving a deposition notice of a witness that some other party has already noticed for deposition. Your cross-notice says, in effect, me too. I intend to fully examine this witness, and my examination will likely go beyond the topics asked by the first noticing lawyer in a material way. So, if your adversary has scheduled and served notice of the deposition of Jane Doe for January 20 at 9 a.m., then you'd be considered as cross-noticing the witness if you also served a notice of taking deposition for Jane Doe on January 20 at 9 a.m. Cross-noticing, in other words, is simply also noticing the deposition. To avoid confusion, your notice should always be titled cross-notice of taking deposition of Jane Doe, even though it technically doesn't need to say that. Now, why cross-notice? What's the point if someone else has already done it and you get the right to attend and cross-examine anyway? Because we know that under Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 30 and its state equivalents, the examination at deposition shall proceed as it would at trial, which means by rule you have the absolute right to cross-examine the witness. Two reasons to cross-notice. First, cross-noticing allows you to treat your examination as completely independent from the examination conducted by the first noticing lawyer. So you can cover any topic you want, whether or not it was raised by the lawyer who began the deposition. Otherwise, you may not be free to cover whatever you want once the noticing lawyer is done. Opposing lawyers, and potentially the judge in your case, may try to limit the scope of your cross-examination to the topics or subject matters covered by the lawyer who actually noticed the deposition. Now, why would that be the case? Because even though you're entitled to cross as a matter of right under the rule, 
Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 30C1 says that the examination and cross-examination of, of a deponent should proceed as they would at trial under the Federal Rules of Evidence. And the Rule of Evidence on Trial Examination Modes, which is Federal Rule of Evidence 611B, specifically says, in part, cross-examination should not go beyond the subject matter of the direct examination and matters affecting the witness's credibility. So at least in theory, the outline of witness examinations should resemble a cone, wide open at one end and getting increasingly narrow as we go until the issues have been exhausted. Redirect at the narrow end of the cone is generally limited to the scope of the cross. This process of only focusing on what's been raised in the most recent examination helps ensure that witness examinations are refined and come to an end. Now, in theory, the lawyer who first notices the deposition and who first examines the witness during the deposition is conducting a direct examination and, again in theory, sets the scope of all follow-up examinations, narrower and narrower on the topics raised. So to repeat, if you don't cross-notice, your follow-up examination, your cross of the witness, may be limited to the subject matter of the direct examination because that's what Federal Rule 30 and Federal Rule of Evidence 611 say. Independently noticing the witness solves that problem, or potential problem, by essentially making the deposition yours once you begin your examination under your cross-notice. So that's one reason to cross-notice, to ensure the admissibility of your cross-examination to the extent it goes materially beyond what the first noticing lawyer asked. Of course, if you don't expect that your cross is going to go beyond the scope of the direct, then there's no reason to cross-notice for that purpose. Now a caveat. As I said in episode 9 of the podcast on how to deal with lawyers who don't cross-notice a deposition, but whose examination still goes far beyond the scope of direct, some judges don't particularly care if your cross-examination goes beyond the scope or topics of the direct, whether you cross-notice or not. Many judges would rather see all of the examination of a witness take place at one time in one deposition, even if your cross-examination technically goes beyond the proper scope of the direct, rather than have a witness come back for multiple independently noticed depositions because of a technical interpretation of a rule about the proper scope of cross-examination. In fact, to give you a flavor for how some judges have ruled on this issue, let me give you a couple of case sites and some parentheticals from those cases. In one case, Alabama Aircraft Industries versus the Boeing Company, 2015 Westlaw 10090631, out of the Northern District of Alabama 2015, the judge there said, quote, although the federal rules note that the examinations and cross-examination of a deponent shall proceed as they would at trial, the language of the rules is slightly misleading. Indeed, the judge says, it is well established that the scope of cross-examination at deposition is not limited to the issues raised in direct examination as it would be in a trial setting. And that's the end of that quote. They cite FCC versus Mizuho, M-I-Z-U-H-O, Medi, M-E-D-Y, Company Limited, 257 FRD 679 682, out of the Southern District of California in 2009. So that's one judge's view. Uh, the opinion did say that it's well established that you can go beyond the scope of the direct. I would take that with a grain of salt. I think that could get you in trouble if you assume, as a matter of course, that you can uh, follow up on cross and cover anything you want without bounds. I, I certainly don't agree that it's well established. But let me give you a, 
a quote from another opinion that'll help you get a start on your research if needed. This is from Smith versus Logan Sport, L-O-G-A-N-S-P-O-R-T, Community School Corporation, 139 FRD 637, out of the Northern District of Indiana, 1991. Quoting from that opinion, Preliminarily, it should be noted that a discovery deposition is intended to provide an effective means of gathering non-privileged information relevant to the subject matter involved in the pending action. Although Rule 30C states that, quote, the examination and cross-examination of witnesses may proceed as permitted at the trial under the federal rules of evidence, close quote, this provision, when considered in light of the rules of evidence, has no practical effect on the scope of cross-examination during a deposition. And I'm omitting some cites in that one. And it continues saying, and the examiner may ask about anything relevant to the subject matter of the action, regardless whether it was raised on direct examination, close quote. So those are two rulings from federal judges that are pretty strong in favor of saying that you can go almost without abandon beyond the scope of direct. Again, I don't know that I would agree that these are well-accepted principles. I think you can get into real trouble if you operate on the assumption that you can ask whatever you want without limitation in a follow-up examination if you haven't cross-noticed. And here's an example of what I'm talking about. Here's a 2020 federal court ruling from a district judge in the Eastern District of Pennsylvania. This one is Sheridan versus the Roberts Law Firm, 2020 Westlaw 529-591. Here's what the federal judge had to say from his perspective. Because Roberts did not cross-notice the deposition or serve a subpoena, the cross-examination is governed by Federal Rule of Evidence 611B, which provides that cross-examination should not go beyond the subject matter of the direct examination and matters affecting the witness's credibility. Close quote. So in that opinion, the judge says, nope, if you didn't cross-notice, your cross-examination has to be within the scope of the direct. So going beyond the scope of direct in a deposition without a cross-notice becomes a problem for you chiefly if A, you have a district judge who reads the rule in a strict literal sense or who has a strict policy about limiting the examinations to their traditional lanes, or B, if your follow-up examination is simply so wildly beyond the scope of the direct that it's likely to trigger a call to the judge's chambers mid-deposition and result in an order halting your examination. Frankly, in my experience across thousands of depositions, duration is likely going to be the biggest factor in whether an opposing lawyer or judge will call foul on your cross-examination if you're going outside the scope of direct and you haven't cross-noticed. In other words, you're more likely to have a problem if you haven't cross-noticed because of the length of your follow-up cross than by its substance. Most lawyers acknowledge that a cross-examination is rarely going to stay neatly within the lines painted by the direct. We all get that. So cross-examinations that go outside the scope of the direct in deposition usually won't draw objections, you know, within reason. But if the direct was an hour long and your unnoticed cross-examination is now in its fourth hour and witnesses are stacking up in the lobby of the court reporter's office, expect a problem. Cross-noticing avoids that mess because a cross-notice is an alert to counsel of record that everyone should plan for the cross-noticed deposition to add time. It's a warning that there will be additional substantive examination beyond what the first noticing lawyer may have planned. When a cross-notice is received, the participating lawyers often and should discuss logistics to ensure that each deposition 
has been allotted a sufficient time slot to permit multiple lawyers to engage in their own independent thorough examination. All right, sometimes I get a question. Well, is there any downside to cross-noticing? Not really, unless you're in a jurisdiction or a court where the number of depositions is limited. In federal court, the default, of course, is 10 depositions under Rule 30. If you cross-notice, at least in federal court, a judge may count that against one of your 10. There isn't a lot of case law out there on this, although you can find some reported scheduling orders issued by federal judges where they do address this and they deem a cross-notice deposition as counting against the noticing party's 10 deposition limit or not counting against it. If you're in a pinch, you may want to assume that a cross-notice will count against your deposition limit. And of course, you don't have to cross-notice the deposition of every witness on another lawyer's notice. You can limit your cross-notice to deponents on an opposing lawyer's list whose examination you think is likely to require you to go beyond the scope of the direct. All right, I said at the outset that there are two chief reasons for cross-noticing a deposition. Let's talk about the second reason, which is where I think the real purpose of a cross-notice lies. For me, the real value is that cross-noticing a deposition and subpoenaing the deponent prevents the first noticing lawyer from canceling the deposition at the last minute and leaving you hanging. Your cross-notice and subpoena forces the witness to show up, even if all other lawyers have canceled or withdrawn their notices. You still get your deposition. If you don't cross-notice and you don't subpoena the witness, there's nothing to stop an opposing lawyer from canceling the deposition even at the 11th hour. And if that happens, you're not going to have a witness and you're not going to have a deposition. Now, it may be that the opposing lawyer has had a conflict pop up and can no longer proceed with the deposition. It may be the opposing lawyer has had a chance to talk to the witness privately and got the witness to sign an affidavit instead, so the deposition is simply unnecessary. Or it may be that the opposing lawyer realizes that the discovery deadline is very close and has noticed that you didn't cross-notice the deposition. Perhaps the opposing lawyer appreciates that you're now in a jam and that you'll be left without critical testimony because you didn't independently take steps to require the witness to appear for deposition. Now, my friend, you are in deep trouble. I can think of more than a few judges who will not rescue you if you didn't take the steps to secure the deposition of a key witness and instead relied on the graces of adversaries to do so. If you're close to a hard discovery deadline and you relied on an opposing lawyer to notice and compel the appearance of a witness that you needed, you might just be out of luck. So that, to me, is the real value of also noticing a deposition and subpoenaing the witness to compel their attendance. It acts as a complete bar to last-minute shenanigans, and it guarantees that you'll get your examination. So if you must have the deposition testimony of a certain witness or witnesses and you just can't make it without them, you've got to give hard thought to cross-noticing and serving subpoenas on the witnesses. Remember that a notice without a subpoena generally isn't going to bind the witness to show up. In most jurisdictions, a third-party witness who hasn't been subpoenaed properly doesn't have to appear. Now, most lay third-party witnesses don't know that, and many will show up even if they weren't properly subpoenaed, but you can't count on that. What you might be able to count on, unfortunately, is an opposing lawyer who's politely informed the third-party witness that if they didn't receive a subpoena, or the subpoena wasn't accompanied by a check, they may not need to appear. That's often all the guidance a third-party witness needs to skip your deposition. 
All right, some practice pointers I think you'll find useful and then we'll wrap up. First, there's no real downside to cross-noticing if there's no limit on the number of depositions you can take in your court or jurisdiction. Cross-noticing will give you some cushion in how you conduct your examination. But you've got to generally subpoena the witness to secure or compel their attendance. Cross-noticing is chiefly an alert to other counsel of record, but it's not enough by itself to ensure that the witness will appear. You've got to serve that witness or the deponents with a subpoena. Third, even if you cross-notice a deposition, it doesn't mean you have to conduct a full-blown, independent examination. You might well decide, once the first noticing lawyer has finished his or her examination, that you just don't need to, or don't want to, conduct your own independent examination. Maybe you've learned something by listening to the first segment of the deposition that leads you to think you now want to hold back on your full-blown examination that you had planned. And you can do that. Again, cross-noticing allows you the right to go beyond the scope of the direct, but it doesn't obligate you to do so. Point four, be sure if you subpoena a witness that you also provide the witness a check for mileage. Federal Rule 45B1, the subpoena rule, and its state equivalents require that you deliver the subpoena to the named person and that you tender fees for one day's attendance and mileage. Most courts have held that a witness does not need to appear if you did not include a check to accompany the subpoena. That's a small but critical flaw in the service of subpoenas for depositions. So make sure if you're down to the wire and another party has noticed the deposition uh, that you also need, that you notice it as well, that you subpoena the witness and you include that check. Fifth, keep in mind that most courts will expect your cross-notice to provide reasonable notice to the deponent and to other lawyers. If you cross-notice the night before the scheduled deposition, you may find that the judge is quite unsympathetic if one of the other lawyers complain that you've basically wrecked the schedule, or if a deponent complains that they had allotted certain time for the deposition and that they cannot stay for yours. Cross-notices are subject to the same reasonable notice requirements as any other notice of taking deposition. All right, sixth and last point. Remember that under the federal rules, how you must conduct the technical examination depends chiefly on the witness's status. In other words, the mode of examination you use, whether you are able to lead the witness by asking leading questions, depends more on the role of the witness than on the technical order in which you question the witness in deposition vis-a-vis -vis other lawyers. Under Federal Rule of Evidence 611C, you can examine a deponent using leading questions even if you are technically conducting a direct examination. If, under Rule C2, you are deposing a hostile witness, an adverse party, or a witness identified with an adverse party, such as a former manager. So if an opposing lawyer begins objecting and tries to convince you that because you cross-notice the deposition and are now technically conducting something in the style of a direct examination, and so can't use leading questions, just keep in mind that isn't necessarily true. The federal rules look at the role and the motive of the witness in determining what examination style you must use and whether you can lead the witness. All right. Thanks again for listening. Be sure to check out the 450-page third edition of the book, 10,000 Depositions Later, the premier litigation guide for superior deposition practice available on Amazon and just about everywhere else you buy books.